invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah tonight. This week and the next three, we are going to study through this little book. Uh, several other associate pastors and I will be preaching as we work through this uh, amazing little book found in the Minor Prophets. Minor not because they are unimportant, simply because they are short. Now most of us, if I were to ask you, are familiar with Jonah. If I say Jonah, the first word that probably comes to your mind is whale, probably, right? It's not a necessarily a whale, but a, a great fish, and, and there's a whole lot more to this book than Jonah and a whale. I hope as we consider it, we will come with fresh eyes, eager to see the, the depth and richness that God has for us. You know, maybe think of it as you come to a familiar story like reading a book or watching a movie a second or third time, and, and, and the first time through, you, you maybe got the big picture, but you missed a lot of the subtle nuances and connections that, that reinforce the, the themes and, and message. Or sometimes we find out the second or third time through that we, we maybe even miss the larger point because we, we miss those details. And I think that's often the case with the book of Jonah. Many miss the point of Jonah. They, they think the book is all about him, that, that it's about his failure and his experience, that the primary lesson of this book is simply don't be Jonah. Well, certainly there'll be things we learn from his example. The book of Jonah is not chiefly about him. It's not chiefly about a great fish or a whale. Jonah is chiefly a book about God and his mercy. The theme of this book is God's mercy on repentant Gentiles. It's a book that shows us God's missionary heart and the amazing grace and mercy he shows towards those who repent. Now, if the book of Jonah were a play, we could divide it into to four acts with an intermission in the middle between chapters one and two and chapters three and four. You see this parallelism a bit in, in chapter one, verse one. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. If you flip over to chapter 3, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And so it has a, a clear structure of movement as we go through the different chapters. And tonight we want to consider chapter 1, going the wrong direction. Now we're not talking about getting lost while driving, a, a reality that is less common today when your cell phone tells you every turn that you need to take. But uh, certainly some of us can appreciate back in the day trying to get around the Metroplex, maybe when you first moved here, like I remember with one of those 100-page MAPSCO books that you were trying to figure out your way while you turned pages and drive and, and got lost. You know, we're not going to think about that. We're not going to think about the fact that women are statistically more likely to get lost or, or that men are statistically more likely to stay that way when they do. <laughs> Rather, we're thinking about intentionally going the wrong direction. See, chapter 1 introduces us to the theme of God's mercy by highlighting the backdrop against which God's mercy shines brightly, that of disobedience, the reality that all we like sheep have gone astray, that we're like Jonah going the wrong direction. And so this chapter and book begins with stubborn disobedience. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, 
Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. This book begins in a a typical prophetic introduction that the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, came to Jonah. The only true and living God has given revelation to his prophet Jonah. We're not told how the word came to him, whether it was in a, a dream, whether it was audible while he was doing something else or in some other way. We don't know a lot about Jonah. 2 Kings 14.25 relates Jonah to the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel. So these events in the book of Jonah took place sometime in Jeroboam's reign from 793 B.C. to 753 B.C. This makes Jonah a contemporary of the other prophets, Hosea and Amos. Jeroboam II was the most powerful king in the, in the northern kingdom. Prior to his reign, the Assyrians had established supremacy in the, in the Near East, but they suffered a, a temporary decline as an empire due to dissension among their ranks. And, and during that time of, of setback, Jeroboam was able to expand the nation's territories to their greatest extent since the time of David and Solomon. In some ways, it was a a high point for the northern kingdom in in a political and geographic way, although there were no high points spiritually for the northern kingdom. See, the religious life of Israel was still such that God sent both Hosea and Amos to warn of impending judgment. See, the reality was because of their stubbornness, their idolatry and wickedness, the nation would fall under God's wrath, and the chosen instrument of God's wrath, according to Hosea, was Assyria. Chapter 11, verse 5 says, will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? So Assyria, this empire in, in temporary decline, would awaken and would devour the northern kingdom. It was to these Assyrians that Jonah was called to go. God said, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. You see, Nineveh was one of the the key cities in Assyria, and as God says, it was a great city. It was located about 550 miles from Samaria, and it indeed was a great city. It had a large outer wall and inner wall, the inner one being 50 feet wide by 100 feet tall, according to historical records. It had a moat 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep around it. Hundreds of thousands of people lived there and in the greater metropolitan area. It was a a sight to behold, but it was a wicked city representing a wicked people, the Assyrians. God says, go to that great city and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The Assyrians were idolaters. They were incredibly violent. And God said to Jonah, cry against them. Let them know that judgment is coming. You see, it is the disobedience, the wickedness of the Assyrians and the fact that they deserve God's judgment that is foundational to rightly understanding this book. They deserved God's wrath. But it's not just the stubborn disobedience of the Ninevites that this book highlights. We also see, secondly, the stubborn disobedience 
of the prophet Jonah. You see, the first two verses of this book sound a lot like you would expect in one of the minor prophets in an Old Testament prophetic book. God gave Jonah a clear command, arise, go to Nineveh, cry against it. But notice what Jonah did, verse three. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He directly disobeyed God. He went east instead of west. It says he went to Joppa, a city on the Mediterranean coast near modern-day Tel Aviv, and he found a ship which was going to Tarshish. We don't know exactly where that was. It was somewhere west on the Mediterranean, far off, likely near Spain. And he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. If you were in Texas and I said go to Mississippi, and you went to California, that's about what Jonah did. He said, I want to get as far away from where God told me to go as I can, and I want to get there as fast as I can. You know, you and I have heard this story before, but this is shocking. A a prophet of God responding to the crystal clear, direct command of God saying, nope, nope not going to do it. I'm not interested in that assignment. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? You know, the scriptures give us some ideas and some clearly stated reasons. You know, it was a long way from home, as I mentioned, over 500 miles. We're not, not talking about a time where you could hop on a plane and go a little two-hour flight or, or a day's drive to get there. This was a long journey away from the people of Israel in the land of promise. It was a difficult assignment. It was also likely not going to be a popular message. Turn back over to 2 Kings 14, 2 Kings 14, where we see a little more about the ministry of Jonah. 2 Kings 14, as I mentioned, places the the prophecy or the, the ministry of Jonah in the midst of Jeroboam II. Verse 23 of 2 Kings 14 says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. You notice that Jeroboam II was a wicked, evil king. He did not lead the nation to turn from the wickedness and the idolatry that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had set them on a course when he established the northern kingdom. But in spite of that, God was merciful, and he allowed him to expand the borders, as I mentioned, back to the the glory days of David and of Solomon. And Jonah had been the one who had prophesied that that was going to happen. In some ways, it seems like Jonah got the Cush assignment. Hosea and Amos, you get to tell them about all their wickedness. Jonah, you get to say, hey, by the way, we're going to expand our borders. Who do you think they liked more? Yeah, Jonah was the the guy who had had been the bearer of good news. 
Good news, guys. Our, our borders will expand. Yeah, we, we like this Jonah guy. God says, we'll I have a new assignment for you. Go to Nineveh, tell them they are wicked, and judgment is coming. Jonah's like, eh, that doesn't sound as popular as the message that I had for Israel. So it was a difficult assignment. He was, was not likely to be popular if he did it, and, and ultimately, he disagreed with God's plan. Look at chapter four of Jonah. We don't want to steal all the thunder, but we get a glimpse of Jonah's heart and the reason why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. You see, it, it wasn't that he opposed the message of judgment that God had given him. He wanted God to judge them. They were his enemies and Israel's enemies. He didn't want them to come and conquer Israel as Hosea had foretold. But he understood this wasn't simply a message of coming judgment, but an opportunity, a call to repent. And if they repented, he knew God would relent. See, look at chapter four, a little spoiler alert. Jonah eventually goes, the Ninevites repent, and God spares them. Verse one of chapter four, Jonah says, or it says this, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Imagine that, great revival, Prophet's response, he's mad. And he says this to the Lord. He prayed and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. You see, it wasn't primarily that it was a long way away or that the people might not like him. The primary reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was because he knew if I preach that message, if I give them God's word, and if they repent, God's not going to judge them. God's going to be merciful and compassionate, and I don't want any part of that. This reveals so much of Jonah's heart, doesn't it? Rather than celebrating God's grace and compassion, he is frustrated by it. You know, it's easy to be hard on Jonah, but consider how you are tempted to think about someone or a group of people who have been very hostile to you. Are you eager for them to repent and be forgiven, or do you hope that they get what's coming to them? Are you eager to tell them the good news, even though it means they may be forgiven for their sin, even their sin against you? Jonah lost sight of God's mercy and grace to him and his people, so he wasn't eager to see God be merciful to others. He wasn't eager to see the Ninevites repent and be spared. He didn't want them to stand in contrast to Israel and their stubborn rebellion. Well, what should Jonah have done? Well, he should have obeyed, right? Even though it was hard, even though it was unpopular, even though it was something he didn't understand or necessarily agree with, he should have done what God called him to do. Again, we can be pretty hard on Jonah, but the reality is we are all Jonah's. We all can easily justify our disobedience to think we know better than God to think that our circumstances or our perspective make us the exception to what God clearly commands. Jonah disobeyed, but he not only disobeyed, refusing to go to Nineveh, instead he went to Tarshish, it says, fleeing from the presence 
of the Lord. This is an interesting point that is is highlighted in this chapter. It's mentioned twice in this verse. It comes up again in verse 10. You know, think about it. Jonah could have just stayed in Israel and said, no, I'm not going. But instead, he chose to flee. He chose to get as far away as he could, to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, some think Jonah hoped he could get away from God, as it were. Many pagans in that day, we'll see, understood deities to be local gods having limited jurisdiction. And so perhaps Jonah thought, if I just get away from Israel, I'll be outside the jurisdiction of God. Chapter 1, verse 9 makes that unlikely as Jonah describes God as the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah understood there is no getting away from God Psalm 139, 7 and 8 says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. There's no getting away from God. There's no hiding from him. Jeremiah 16, 17 says, For my eyes are on their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Jonah couldn't actually get away from God, neither can we when we choose to disobey. Some think this is simply referring to his official resignation as a prophet. If you look throughout the Old Testament, sometimes prophets are described as those who stand in the presence of the Lord, those who represent God, who get a word from God and pass that along to the people. And so Jonah is resigning from that. He's saying, I'm done with that. I'm done standing in your presence. Possible, but I think there's more going on. The, the word presence is more literally the, the face of God. See, God knew, or Jonah knew, he couldn't literally get away from God, but I think he wanted to be out of God's line of sight, as it were. He, he, he understood God was focused on Israel, and he's given him an assignment in Nineveh, and so maybe if I get as far away from both as I can, I can just kind of slip away and do my own thing, and, and God will just kind of let me go. God won't really notice, or he won't really care. Certainly God could have done that. He could have let him go. He could have killed him on the spot. He did neither. Jonah's stubborn disobedience led, secondly, to severe discipline. Pick up in verse four. It says, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Jonah, having boarded this ship bound for Tarshish is on the Mediterranean and and the Lord it says hurled a great wind on the sea notice the intentional act of God he hurled a wind like like Saul hurling a spear at David and the result was this great storm on the sea not not your typical afternoon Thunderstorm. Verse 5 says, Then the sailors became afraid. When the seasoned sailors are afraid, you know it's time to be afraid, right? It's like when you're on a, on a flight and there's turbulence. What do you do? You kind of glance at the, at the flight attendants, and if they seem calm, you say, okay, this is normal. No big deal. But when the flight attendants start to get afraid, you think, okay, I should probably start being afraid too. The, the, the sailors are afraid. This is not your normal storm. 
Why did God do this? Well, God is providing Jonah the opportunity to repent. He's not simply punishing Jonah. In his mercy as a loving father, he is disciplining him in order to bring him back to obedience and and right relationship. We'll see him do this in the the coming verses by bringing difficult circumstances into his life and and devastating consequences for him and for others and and by directing conversations to, to have with others as well. Notice verse five, it says, then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God. Nothing like a a crisis, right, to bring people to, uh, or to make people religious. Each man crying out to his own God. As I mentioned, they had the perception that gods were more local deities and so every man's crying out to the God that they worshiped wherever they were from. Religious practices, though, are only as good as the truth they are based on, and these sailors worship false gods, and they were of no good in the midst of the trials of life. We'll see how God uses this. The true God used this trial and the futility of their worship to reveal himself to these men. And notice how Jonah's sin affected these sailors. They're they're terrified, they're crying out to their gods, and it says, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. You know, one of the consequences of our sin is that it often affects others as well. Other people get swept up in the, in the turmoil and the devastation of our sin. That was the case with these sailors. Because of Jonah's disobedience and the resulting storm, they threw the cargo into the sea, likely costing themselves significant financial gain in an effort to stay afloat. Jonah, he, he didn't really care. Notice it continues, but Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. You've got these soldiers who are terrified, doing everything that they can to survive the storm, and Jonah is underneath asleep. You know, perhaps this was the sleep simply of a man who was not very useful on deck. He wasn't a sailor. So he was down below, lulled to sleep by the waves and didn't realize all that was going on. Perhaps this was the sleep of a man who was depressed and despondent as he knew he was going the wrong direction and just wanted to ignore that and and not pay attention to that reality. Regardless, he slept as the storm raged on and so verse six tells us the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Notice the irony here. This this heathen sea captain begging the prophet of God to pray. As one commentator says, it's a sad commentary when those who are committed to the truth of God's word have to be prodded by a lost world into spiritual activity. This captain comes to Jonah and says, wake up, pray to your God, maybe he cares, maybe he'll be concerned and we won't perish. What's going on here? I think this is an example of God using this pagan man to prick Jonah's conscience, isn't it? Jonah is going the wrong direction. It's like in these events with the storm and now the interaction with the the captain, God is putting up a big sign for an exit and a way to get off and turn around. Jonah could have responded, my God is concerned, actually, 
And my God is able to keep us from perishing. It's my disobedience that has brought this on. And, and if I repent and, and if we turn around, we'll be spared. But like many heading the wrong direction, he stubbornly continues in the opposite direction from that which he should have headed. He continued in his stubborn disobedience. He doesn't own what he's done. He just continues down the road defying the living God. As a result, verse six says that each man said to his mate, come let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. Again, this was not the normal storms they were used to. They, they recognized something different is going on here. This is something that has arisen because of, of something that has upset God. And so they cast lots to see on whose account this calamity had come, and, and they cast lots, and it fell on Jonah. You know, it's not always true that calamity is the result of a specific individual's sin. We, we don't want to think that based on this text. It's true that sometimes it is, but not always. You remember Jonah's fri- or Job's friends made that mistake with Job. They thought everything that he suffered was the direct consequence of specific sin in his life, and, and it wasn't. Suffering is generally the response of sin, generally, but it's not always a direct one-to-one correlation. Jesus made that clear in, in John 9. It says, as he passed, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? That was the common perception. If there's suffering, somebody sinned to deserve it, and, and Jesus said, neither, Neither this man nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So calamity is not always the result of a specific individual sin, but in in this case it was. They were right. Now if Jonah was still holding out hope that, you know, maybe it's just a coincidence that I'm running from God and disobeying his clear command and I'm on this ship headed for Tarshish and there's a storm unlike any these guys have ever seen. Maybe it's just coincidental and it's really nothing to do with me. They cast lots and and the lot fell on him. Prior to the completion of the canon of scripture, casting lots was one way that God directed his people it's not a model for us to follow don't go home and you know if if somebody broke the lamp at your house say all right kids fess up or else we'll cast lots and figure out who it was Um, it's not to be imitated today but but God who was sovereign is is sovereign even over the seemingly random roll of the dice directed them to Jonah and with clarity as to who was at fault they said to him verse 8 tell us now On whose account has this calamity struck? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? They likely knew it was Jonah. It's more likely they're asking why has this calamity struck? What what have you done in order to cause this? And who are you and what's going on? Notice They don't record, it doesn't record everything Jonah answered. Verse 10 alludes to some other things, but Jonah responded in verse nine and said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. I fear Yahweh, God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. 
the recorded response focuses on Jonah's understanding of God. Jonah knew the right answer, didn't he? He answered correctly. He knew who God was, the God of heaven, the the God who rules and reigns over all, the God who created all things, who made the sea and the dry land, and he knew how he and all people should respond to God with fear, with, with awe and worship. But he wasn't living that way, was he? This is a sobering reminder, isn't it, how easily our lives can fail to match the testimony of our mouths. Again, this was an opportunity for Jonah to repent, to humble himself and turn around. God is shining the spotlight on him, reminding him that he is running from God in stubborn disobedience and Jonah keeps putting out up his hand to block out the light to keep going the wrong direction. Verse 10 says, then the men became extremely frightened. They were already frightened by the storm back in verse five. Now they are even more frightened because they understand who lies behind the storm. Their fear in verse five was simply because of the magnitude of the storm. Their their greater heightened fear now is because they understand this is the creator God who has brought this upon us. They responded and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. How could you do this? What were you thinking? what they're saying. Even these pagan sailors recognized the folly of Jonah's disobedience, and yet he continued in it. They say, how could you do that? How could you seek to flee from the presence of this God, the one who rules over all, who made the sea and the dry land? What are you thinking? Verse 11, they started to think not what was he thinking, but what should we do? They said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? How do we bring some resolution to this situation? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said, all right, you got us into this mess. You tell us, what do we have to do to get out of this mess? What should we do to you that the sea may become calm? And he said to them, verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. You recognize Jonah fully understood what was going on. He he said, I understand that this storm which is affecting you has come upon us because of my disobedience. I know that it's because of me and what I have done that this storm has come upon not only me, but you. And yet he is unwilling to repent and turn from that. 
Jonah clearly knew the only reason they were in this predicament was because of his sin. He had two options. He could cry out to God in repentance and ask the men to turn the ship around, or he could stubbornly disobey, and he chose the latter. He said, I would rather die than go to Nineveh as God has commanded me. What a picture of stubborn disobedience. He was committed to that course. He had come that far, and he was unwilling to turn. He refused to repent in spite of the clear discipline of God. You know, this is the stubbornness, the stubborn sinfulness of the human heart, isn't it? Think about the position Jonah's stubborn commitment to his sin has put these men in. Not only have they lost the cargo of their ship and been terrified by this storm, but now they have the agony of what to do with him, of potentially living with the guilt of throwing this guy over if that's indeed what they decide to do. But notice their response, verse 13. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. The example of these men, again, paints a contrast with Jonah, doesn't it? These pagan sailors are willing to risk their lives in order to try to save Jonah. That's what they're doing. They say, we don't want to throw you over. We'd rather try as hard as we can to get back to land some other way. They were willing to risk their lives in order to try to save Jonah, but Jonah would rather die than risk saving the Ninevites. So they feverishly strive to get to land, but to no avail. And then verse 14, then they called on the Lord and they said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. These men have gone from praying to their own gods to praying to Yahweh, the true God. And notice they recognize their accountability to him. Oh Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. They recognized God's sovereign rule. Oh Lord, you have done as you pleased. You see, in the midst of this storm, these men had come to get a a clear vision of the reality of who Yahweh was, the one true God. They understood that like Jonah was accountable to him, so were they. And like God had brought this storm on on, uh, them and on the sea as a result of Jonah's sin, that God was sovereign over all, that he does as he pleases. And having begged God not to hold it against them, not to, to hold them accountable for the life of Jonah, verse 15 says they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. No more Jonah, no more storm, right? Jonah was the one who sinned. He was the one who was disobedient. He was the cause of the storm. They throw Jonah over, and the storm ceases. End of the book, right? No more Jonah, short book. Or chapter two begins, and the word of the Lord came to Hosea, arise and go to Nineveh, right? That would be if I was God, Jonah wouldn't have lasted that long, but that's not the case. 
In spite of stubborn disobedience leading to severe discipline, this chapter closes with a clear picture of sovereign mercy. First, to the sailors, verse 15 said, as they threw him into the sea, the sea stopped its raging. These sailors were physically spared. God was merciful to them. Certainly not everything was as it had been before. Their, their cargo was on the bottom of the Mediterranean, but God had used this terrible trial brought about because of the sin of Jonah to reveal himself to these pagan sailors. Notice verse 16, it says, Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They went from being afraid in verse 5 to being extremely frightened in verse 10 to fearing Yahweh greatly, to having an awe and a respect of Yahweh the one true God. Now we can't say for sure that these men became true believers. It's, it's possible that they simply added Yahweh to the pantheon of other gods they recognized, but I, I think it's more likely that they did. The, the wording here is that of, uh, that would be often used of becoming proselytes, of Gentile followers of Yahweh. Believers in the one true and living God who made the sea and the dry land. Notice what it says of them. They feared him greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the, the picture of, of worshiping God and of being devoted to God. They probably didn't offer this sacrifice on the ship while they were sailing. This is probably a reference to at some point in the future. Perhaps they headed back to Joppa and made a beeline for Jerusalem and there they worshiped Yahweh. We simply don't know. And they made vows, again, exactly of what we don't know. But notice the, the similar language of chapter two, verse nine, when, when Jonah prays, he says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will repay. Salvation is from the Lord. That seems to be the same perspective of these pagan sailors now. They came to understood God as the God of salvation, the God who spared them, the true God who is worthy of their worship and devotion. Regardless of whether we will see them one day in heaven or not, God was merciful to these Gentile sailors. You know, it certainly doesn't justify Jonah's disobedience, but consider the fact that Jonah never should have been on that boat. And Jonah did everything he could to avoid being useful to God while he was on that boat. But God used the consequences of Jonah's sin and the words of that reluctant, rebellious prophet to reveal himself to these Gentile pagans. That's God's heart, isn't it? That's what God does. He is gracious and merciful to those who repent. In fact, that's exactly what Jonah knew was true about God, wasn't it? Rather than rejoicing in that and exulting in that and being a part of the proclamation of that, Jonah wanted nothing to do with it and yet got used the circumstances and the events of his rebellion to reveal himself to these sailors. 
Jonah wanted nothing to do with that. He wanted nothing to do with that God, and yet God was merciful to him as well. Notice lastly, God's sovereign mercy to Jonah. Look at verse 17. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish, possibly a whale of some sort, perhaps another great fish. It's a, a picture of God's sovereignty over every creature on the planet. God appointed that fish. He, he had that fish at the, at the right place at the right time to do exactly what he wanted that fish to do. And what did he want that fish to do? He wanted him to swallow Jonah, not to tear him limb from limb as Jonah deserved, but to swallow him, to give him some more time to think and to repent. Isn't it fascinating? The heart of God, the patience of God with Jonah. God says, you can't get away that easily, Jonah. I'm not done with you yet. I'm not gonna let you run the opposite direction without coming after you. God is a, a patient God, a loving God, a faithful God, a God who disciplines those who are his children. He doesn't let them just go away, which is where we'll pick up the story next week as we continue to see the amazing mercy of God toward the disobedient, toward Jonah, and toward the repentant Gentiles. But as the curtain closes on this first act, don't miss the primary lessons for us. What does God want us to take away from what we've seen during our time together tonight, we need to be first amazed at the mercy and grace of God. You know, Jonah, I think at his, at his core, he'd gotten familiar with the idea of God being kind and gracious to his people. It was commonplace, I think, to him that in spite of their sin, God continued to care for them and God continued to treat them with grace. They rebelled against God. What happened? God expanded their, their borders and was patient. Jonah was not amazed at the mercy and grace of God towards him and towards his people, and so he was not eager for that to be demonstrated to others. Never lose sight of what God has done. Never lose sight of the amazing realities that we've sung about even tonight of, of the fact that God is our Savior and our Shepherd. We need to be amazed at the mercy and grace of God, and we need to be aware that we are all Jonah, that apart from Christ, we were all going the wrong direction. And even as believers, we are, are still prone to disobey. Like Jonah, don't, don't justify or excuse your disobedience. Don't convince yourself that you know better than God. Don't buy the lie that disobedience isn't a big deal. But when you do find yourself going the wrong direction, when you find yourself disobedient to the Lord, be quick to repent. Eagerly embrace the discipline of God. Take, take the first off-ramp when heading the wrong direction. Don't be afraid to stop and ask for directions instead of driving around for 30 minutes. Jonah had ample opportunity in this chapter, didn't he? God did so many things and brought so many little things and opportunities through interactions with the sailors and through the storm where he could have said, you're right, God, you're right. I've disobeyed, I'm going the wrong way, and I, I need to turn and go back. But in stubborn hard-heartedness, he continued down that road. Don't be like that, be quick to repent. 
and be eager to be a part of God's work in the world. You know, God hasn't called us to go to Nineveh, but God's heart for the nations hasn't changed. God has commanded us to take the gospel to all the nations. Like Jonah going to Nineveh, it's not easy. It's not always well received. Some of those peoples and nations are hostile. They don't really welcome that message or they've been hostile to us. But God is a merciful savior and we have the privilege and the responsibility to participate in that work that God has given. And God's gonna do that. He's gonna fulfill his purposes, just like we've seen, beginning to see in this book. God is a a rescuer, a savior. Whether that's the, the pagan sailors on the boat or the people of Nineveh, God's going to get it done. But it's our joy and privilege to participate, and we should do so willingly and eagerly because of the amazing mercy and grace that God has shown us. So this book is a powerful picture of God's heart. He is a merciful God. He is merciful and patient, gracious and full of compassion. The the stubborn disobedience of the Ninevites and of Jonah led to severe discipline at the hand of God as an act of his love. And God was merciful even in the midst of those things because that is his nature. 